So I've been thinking about, um, you know, as, as it's Easter, and I know it's supposed to be spring, but I don't know about you, but have you noticed it's still cold outside? I love the idea of warm weather. I don't know why I live in Michigan, because there is no warm weather here ever. It's winter into spring, which is still winter, and then we have like a day of summer, and then it's winter again. Um, but, but I hate winter, and some of you have said you love winter, and I've got to say, I think you are um, twisted, warped individuals, and that's not even being harsh. That's just genuinely true. But I was thinking how a few years ago, like, I, um, I went with my uncle to Arizona for the first time and to play golf, and, and we went, and we went during the winter, and I, I've never noticed before, I've never been to a space or a place before where on one side, it's as if someone took a marker and drew a line, and on one side of the line, there would be, like, green, vibrant, growing grass, and on the other side of the line, there was dead, dormant, grayish brownish-looking grass that was not alive, right? This is why I hate winter, because everything looks dead. And trees are barren, ground looks gray, the sky looks gray, everything looks gray, right? That's what winter looks like. But what I couldn't help but think as I was there in Arizona was how on one side you could see vibrant life, and on the other side you could see, like, death. And I started thinking how that's kind of a microcosm to life. Two people can be standing next to each other, right near one another, and one can feel like life is amazing and vibrant and beautiful and full of life, and the person next to them can feel like life is full of death and destruction, and their very soul feels like it's dying. Have you noticed this? How can we maintain the same places and spaces, and one of us feel like we live in death, and the other one feels like we live in life? Now, um, I'm not talking about, like, physical health today, but I'm talking about kind of our whole self. All right, spoiler alert, um, this is Easter, and so we celebrate what we believe the resurrection of Jesus, where he rose from the dead. I know, crazy story, we'll talk about that story. So, spoiler alert, we believe that today we gather to celebrate, to learn from, to lean into the idea that somehow God is redeeming and restoring and making all things new even us, so that we can find life from places that seem to be death before. And if you're confused or concerned or just don't know what to think about that story, you're not alone. Jesus' own followers found yourself in that very same space. So we're going to read this from Luke chapter 24 today. And Luke writes these words trying to describe what happened on the first Easter Sunday. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, "'Why do you look for the living among the dead?' He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, 
They told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. All right, I'll stop for a second. This is one of many examples of men not listening to women to their own detriment. Just going to point that out for all of us. Moving on. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition... Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, like I said, you may have already heard this story, and you're probably not surprised if you show up at church on Easter that they would talk about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, that's probably not surprising at all. It's an unbelievable story that's so unbelievable that we probably come to believe it. I mean, if I was trying to convince you that this story was true, I wouldn't have told the story in this way, especially in the first century. I wouldn't have had women go to the tomb because women were considered not reliable witnesses in that day. I wouldn't have had them tell the story. I wouldn't have told you about an angel coming because that's just weird and crazy, right? That doesn't happen every day. I wouldn't have told you these stories I would have had to come up with a way to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead, which by itself is unbelievable. Dead things don't come back to life. And yet, the gospel writer Luke, or Matthew, or Mark, or John, or the whole early church still tell the story the same way. 
the story that's unbelievable. See, the people were longing for this king to come. They were longing in Israel for a king to set them free. It's what Pastor Matt talked about last week. It's why the people shouted, Hosanna, in the city streets, which means, God, save us. Save us from the Romans. Save us from this life that we're living. Save us to something better. See, the people of Israel remembered a day when they were the nation of envy among the peoples of their day. They remembered a day when the world had been right to them, and in their eyes, everything was good, and they had prospered, and they had flourished. And they remembered this conversation that God had had with Abram years ago when he became Abraham, and he said, you will be a blessing, you will be blessed to be a blessing to the world. I'll make your name great, and you will be a great people. And so they had this history, this promise from God, this way that they felt like they were called to live. The problem for them, much like us, is as they thought about this idea to be a blessing to the world, it was centered on that they were to be better than other people. And they couldn't imagine a God who'd want to redeem all of creation and all people that didn't start with them. That's not unlike you and I, probably, if we're honest. But the problem is that's not how God works. God wants to redeem the whole world. So here's the reality for us. If I were to Fast forward, and then Jesus comes into their day, and he begins to teach and preach and tell all kinds of stuff. He heals people. He's doing crazy stuff that's just incredible. And so the people get their hopes up again that maybe, just maybe, this is the Messiah, which means the one who's going to save us, the Savior. This Jesus, maybe he's the one we've been longing for. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to kick them out. He's going to restore our nation. He's going to make us great. They expected a warrior king. What they got was a suffering, sacrificial servant. Their expectations of what would happen were not what were met. And Jesus kept saying things like this, I'm going to tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. If we were to show you the ancient temple, it's this massive thing, massive stones, and without modern equipment, you think, how in the world are you going to tear that thing down? See, the problem for them is they too had bought in, much like we do sometimes with piranhas, we think the only place God's presence dwells is in the church. What Jesus is saying is this, I'm going to redeem all of creation, and I'm going to redeem it in such a way that I'm going to restore the idea that God wants to enter into relationship with you, that God wants to be divinely present with you, that God wants you to be the place where his glory dwells. And so no longer will the temple be this place where heaven meets earth, but you will be the very place where heaven meets earth. Jesus is saying that you and I can be the very place where God dwells. This is revolutionary. This had never been thought before. This was something radically new. God wants to be in relationship with his people in an intimate way, that God's willing to show them the fullness of his love through the death of his son, so that we could see the gift of knowing him in deeper and deeper ways, so that God could model for us the depth of his love for all of creation. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection point us forward to a new way. God wants you and I to have new life. And this for us is what God desperately longs for you and I to know. 
to live as if heaven is here now in this moment, not just some far-off reality, but you and I can live in such a way that we come to know the fullness of life here and now. Now, here's the reality for all of us. Every one of us in this room, we live from a particular worldview. Right? We all do it, whether we think about it or don't think about it, whether we choose to engage in that idea or not, we all see the world from particular lenses. All of us do. And I would make the argument that all of us, at some level, see it from a religious perspective, whatever that religion might be. Some of us use phrases like, I'm spiritual but not religious. We, we say, I'm, I'm spiritual but I don't believe in religion. Whatever it is we want to use, we use all these ways of thinking to view the world. Or we, we have a worldview where we say, I'm hoping there is no religion or there is nothing spiritual, and I just do what I want and I hope it doesn't matter. That is a worldview. All of us have one. And so most of us, at some level, try to have, find meaning in life and what we're going to live for and what we value. And so we become all these kind of things that we aren't sure what we're living from. But the idea that there's a divine being who loves you, who desires to know you, who desires to enter into a relationship with you, that is unique to Christianity. And it is unique to the person of Jesus. Right? You, um, ancient mythology... Uh, they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the gods and goddesses and during a relationship with them in good ways. I mean, if you read about the ancient mythology, right, they were, the gods and goddesses were vengeful, angry, violent, lustful, petty, right? Read the stories. So I was fortunate or unfortunate for the students, I'm not really sure. A few years ago, I taught a, a class at university, and the class was broken into three parts. Um, one part was like Christian faith, felt pretty confident to teach that part. Uh, one part was ethics fairly confident to teach that part, and one part was world religions, fairly not confident to teach that part. So I read a lot that semester, and so I read a lot about the various world religions, and what I began to find over and over again was there was something unique about all of them, right? There were things that were kind of consistent across the various world religions, like pretty much all of them encouraged people to be good, moral people. Pretty much all of them encouraged you to be generous to others. Pretty much... All of them have a kind of a code of ethics that you're to live by, certain behaviors you're to embrace. Most of them have some works-based way of living. But here's the reality. What separates them is the interaction with the idea of divinity, the idea of God. Right? If I'm Buddhist or Hindu, I want to get to the place of moksha or nirvana, which is the idea that I can become one with all creation and if I don't get it right, I'll just be reincarnated again and again and again until I get it right. And once I get it right, I live in oneness with creation. That's the goal. Problem for us is if you still don't know you're not there yet, you're not there yet, and so you'll be reincarnated again. And you can't do anything necessarily right in it, but it's supposed to help you find peace. We could talk about the idea if you were Islamic, right, you believe in a God, um, but the God is so wholly other, so out there, that that God doesn't want to enter into right, right relationship with you. How dare you even think that? What you would think is this, that you're to live a particular way, and if you live just rightly enough, then, then you will come to know paradise. If you do all the right things. So of all the world religions, Christianity is the only one that says God comes to you and desires to be in relationship with you. And it's about the divine's love for you. It's a radically unique worldview. 
In fact, um, early world religion teaches about how God's love for you is this reciprocal relationship that God desires. In almost every other worldview, there's this idea that you're to be reincarnated or to find new life after death, but it's not you that's finding that life. It's a, some form of you. In every other religion, your relationship with the divine, whatever that looks like, doesn't begin until you die. And Jesus comes to say, that's not who God is. This God wants you to know him. This God wants you to enter into a relationship with him. This God wants you to know the fullness of his love here and now so that you can begin to live as if heaven has come so that the divine can dwell in you, that you can be the very temple of God, that heaven can meet earth in your very life. And this is radically different because Christianity doesn't require you to literally die to come to know God. It invites you to know him here and now. And so Jesus came to save us, not just for something in the future, but for something right here and now. And so what might happen if this new life, this idea of living this resurrected life here and now, what if we embrace that as true? What if we began to live that out? And so here's what Paul writes about this. He says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is why. It's where the angels ask the disciples, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now let's go back to the conversation of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas and his companion as they're walking along. Jesus comes up to them, but they don't recognize Jesus. They don't see him. He's there, but they don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. They can't sense it's him. And so what is it about this? They don't realize who God actually is in the person of Jesus. They can't see that this might be who God is. And so Jesus asked them, well, what's going on? Why are you walking this way? What's happened? And so they begin to tell him the story. Well, this Jesus guy lived, and we thought he was really awesome, and we thought he was so good, and we thought he was going to change everything. We thought he was going to kick out the Romans, and he was going to be this great thing. Um, but it didn't happen. We expected God to send the Messiah to save us, to save people from ourselves, to save us from death, to save us from where we are. But they still didn't see in fact, verse 21 says this, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. See, they were looking for God to act, but they were looking for God to act in the way they understood God to work, and it was too small. See, God doesn't care about one singular nation. He doesn't. He cares about the whole world, all of them. So he comes to redeem everything. And so there are not looking for God to act in a radically new way they understood God to work, and God opens their eyes. And then I can't help but think about the singular question, what, 
Was there lack of recognition because they couldn't literally see or just because they didn't want to see or they just not know it was Jesus? But there's a line they said that I couldn't help but just kind of spending the week thinking about. It's this line. We're not our hearts burning within us. Well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Now, the scriptures, you know, is just the Old Testament, if, if that's helpful. But, but we're not our hearts burning within us. Have you ever had your heart burning within you? Have you ever found yourself looking for life in all the wrong places, looking for ways to fill your life, only the things that you keep doing and le- leaning into and living out, they just keep leading you to more and more death? Have you found yourself going in those directions again and again, right? You keep pursuing more in terms of work. If I just get this promotion or that raise, if I just get with that person or that person, if I just switch from this to that, if I just pursue that, if I buy this thing, whatever it might be, if I just got that, I would find life only to find that it leads to more and more death. This is the reality for most of us. We live into this again and again and again. But on the road to Emmaus, there's a glimpse of something different. So I see these words that are so powerful for us. Jesus is not always the Savior we want, but he is the Savior we need. Jesus is not always the Savior we want, but he is the Savior we need. You see, my dream for you and for me today is this. It's pretty simple, actually. My hope is that you and I would have such an encounter with Jesus that these words of the disciples would be true for us. Was not my heart burning within me? Was not my heart burning within me in such a way that I would come to know the resurrected Jesus and it would give my life purpose and meaning and a reason to get out of bed and a reason even to go to bed? And so for us, the Emmaus Road is the path of discipleship, and it's whatever journey we're walking on that Jesus joins us and says, do you want to go a different way? Do you want to find a way that leads to life, or do you want to keep walking in a direction that's going to lead to death? And so the question for you and I is pretty simple. What journey are you on? What path are you taking? I don't know about you, but I desperately want to be on a journey that leads to life, a journey that leads to Jesus. A journey that leads to me living in such a way that my heart is burning within me. I want to know the resurrected Jesus that invites me into life. Here and now, not just when I die. I want to know the one that said he's going to redeem and restore, make all things right. I want to encounter Jesus in such a way that my heart would burn within me, don't you? So here's the challenge for you and I. Today, we would choose Jesus today, that we would choose the resurrection life that he invites us into, that today we would allow the past of our life to be just that, our past. Just a couple days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. I mean, I know, it's weird that we call it Good Friday. It doesn't really sound that good. It doesn't feel that good. We're talking about Jesus being crucified, right? If you read about crucifixion, there's nothing really that good about it. But it's this marker of death, the death of Jesus, and then we celebrate today Easter, the resurrection, the new life of Jesus. So what if for you and I, what if we decided that today was our Good Friday, today we're going to die to whatever it is that held us captive, and we're going to allow Jesus to captivate our hearts so that our hearts are burning within us, and not only we die, have our own Good Friday, but we'd also have an Easter as well, that we'd be resurrected and we'd live into new life, that you and I would let our past die, 
the things we have pursued, and we would pursue Jesus with such a fervor and a passion that our hearts would literally be burning within us. You see, Jesus died for our sins, but he rose again so we could live. Jesus died for our sins, but he rose again so we could live. See, the cross may be the moment in which Jesus died for you so we could see the fullness of God. But the resurrection is the moment that we're called to live into. So the invitation for you and I today is simple. Follow Jesus. Find new life here, now. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together for the way you love us, for the way you invite us to come near, for the way you desire to redeem and restore and make all things new. And so, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace, and we thank you for the way that you desire to do something in and through us that we never thought possible, that you desire to give us new life, for us to live in such a way as Paul writes, that when we die, that death never really even enters in, that we know that Jesus is the first fruits, but we become people also resurrected to find new life. So, Father, we ask that you might open our eyes and open our ears in such a way that we might encounter you on the road of our life. Having encountered you, we might be changed. That what our perception of the divine might be, it might be reshaped and reimagined into the image of Jesus. And that our life's great purpose might be in following him and helping others to know him. And may, too, we live lives in which we are so radically defined by the love of God that it permeates every area of our life, from our home to our workplaces, among our friends and our coworkers, in our schools and our neighborhoods. And so, Father, may we become your people more and more. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name.